Stories Bigger Than Texas, the Alamo Podcast. February 1836, before the siege of the Alamo. History tells us what's coming next, but for the people living through these events, information is painstakingly slow, arriving only by letter. Today we reveal the written words that have survived, the repeated grave concerns that battle will soon break out in San Antonio, why cries for help were never answered, and the startling realization that soldiers are staring down death. I'm your host, Emily Bauckham. Back with us today is Ernesto Rodriguez, the Alamo Senior Curator, Historian, and Lecturer. Thanks for being here. It is my pleasure. We left off in January 1836 with all the key figures making their way to San Antonio, and frankly, morale declining on both sides after a long, cold winter. It was declining. People were leaving the Alamo site and returning home. Others were going on to expeditions south. Things weren't looking good for the Alamo garrison. They were lacking manpower, lacking supplies, and they were looking for any type of help that could come. On February 1st, a man named William Fairfax Gray writes in his diary from Nacogdoches, Texas. Who was he and why was he there? William Fairfax Gray is a gentleman that uh, traveled from Virginia to Texas. On his way, he's keeping a journal. One of the things that he finds is that Texas is in revolt, and he finds that idea fascinating. So he makes his way to the convention at Washington and the Brazos, where he will begin to write down everything that he hears and sees. His journal will later become a book called From Virginia to Texas, The Diary of William Fairfax Gray. And in that diary, we get insight to not only what's happened at the convention, but we get the firsthand account of the fall of the Alamo from Joe. He writes that people are divided about adhering to the Mexican Constitution of 1824 or declaring for, quote, absolute and immediate independence. Yes. So what's happening in Texas at this time is you have two factions, the War Party and the Peace Party. The War Party is looking for independence and becoming its own nation. The Peace Party wants to try to keep the old status quo. Now, early on in the Texas Revolution, the Peace Party was winning. After the Battle of Bear and then the capitulation that is signed between the Texians and the Mexican army, one of the things that it states is that the Mexican army will not fight against those that defend the Constitution of 1824. So the Peace Party is still reigning supreme. That will soon change, and the War Party will gain ground. On February 2nd, James Bowie writes to Henry Smith. He says that Sam Houston received a written dispatch from James Neal that an attack would soon be made by a numerous Mexican army on our important post at Bear. Yes, and so what he's doing is that there's been rumors coming along, but Bowie is noticing the situation is dire, as did James Clinton Neal, the commander of the Alamo garrison. And they're starting to notice that they need men and supplies. So in that letter, he's basically calling out Houston, saying, you know what's happening, we need help. They basically make a decision that they will stand and die in these ditches rather than give them up to the enemy. He also writes, the salvation of Texas depends in great measure in keeping Behar out of the hands of the enemy. The thing is that Bear sits on the crossroads of Texas. And if you can keep this town out of the hands of the Mexican army, you're preventing the movement of goods and supplies. And so that's why it's very important. The Battle of the Alamo is the battle for the town. It just happens to occur in the fortification. 
A few days later, on February 5th, Santa Ana writes to a Mexican general making plans for more troops and provisions to come to San Antonio. Why is this last-minute push so critical? It's critical because the Mexican army is already behind schedule. The intention was, according to Vicente Felizola, the second-in-command, the intention was to arrive here in early December. Unfortunately, the circumstances would not allow that. One of them is the commander-in-chief becomes ill and he holds back the forces. So this massive push is to try to get into Texas before the armies actually unite. Why is this happening? Well, you had an event that occurred soon after the Battle of Bear, and it was the Matamoros expedition, where the Mexican army knows that troops have been moving south. This push is to try to prevent more troops moving south. On February 8th, 1836, former Tennessee Congressman David Crockett arrives in San Antonio. Who did he come here with? He came here with, basically, it was a handful of people. Unfortunately, many others over the course of our history have made his group bigger than it really was, and they've united many, many of the Tennesseans with them. But he traveled with a group of four, a party of four, and they get smaller. When he crosses into Texas, um, one moves over and uh, is shipped or sent to join a different garrison, and Crockett is sent to San Antonio. Now... We all know that Tennessee had a lot of volunteers, but not all of them came with Crockett. Legend calls this team the Tennessee Mounted Volunteers, but the truth is this really was not a formal team. Yeah, it was not a formal team. On February 11th, a man named Green B. Jameson writes to Henry Smith. So the men here at the Alamo comprise a tapestry of what is Texas. You have lawyers, you have doctors, you have ranchers, farmers, and so it's made up of everyone. And Green B. Jameson happens to be the engineer here at the Alamo. And one of the things that he's working on is how do you defend the site and how do you defend the town? And what he comes, he comes to the understanding that you can't defend both with the number of men that they have available. He also has this idea that you really can't defend the Alamo the way that it is. You have this gigantic rectangle. He proposes one early idea is to cut the rectangle and make it a square. A square is easily defended. Rectangle is not. You don't have enough men for a rectangle. So that's one of his early ideas. That does not work out the way he plans. But he begins fortifications and trying to finish what the Mexican army had begun in October through December. He writes in this letter he's been on duty for four months straight and is determined to see Texas become free and independent. Annie writes they're hearing 2,000 soldiers are at the Rio Grande and they're preparing ferry boats to march the river. But news traveled so slowly back then. How much can we trust this timeline? The thing that's very interesting is they're getting reports from scouts that are all over Texas. Many of these were part of Juan Seguin's groups. They were people that were native, that knew the terrain, and they're traveling back and forth. And so they're getting word. And a lot of the times you were getting word that the army was marching and there was nothing happening because while well, you're getting the, the information from somebody else, it's a lot of it was early on was sort of like the game of telephone where someone would walk up and tell you something and then it changes. But as the pre-siege continues or the month continues, what ends up happening is that more reports are coming because the scouts are actually getting further south. And now they're reporting, we can see the armies moving. Jameson writes that the Texans only had about 150 soldiers and that a great number of volunteers will leave the next day because it's been two months of no pay, no clothes, no provisions. 
He puts the pay at $7 each for four months. Yeah, pay was scarce. The Republic of Texas, unfortunately, early on and then later as well, had a scarcity of funds. What they did have was land. So there's a lot of land being promised. Land is power, land is wealth. But land doesn't feed you right away. And a lot of these men have been here without the adequate supplies, without adequate food. Many of them left families behind in Gonzales, San Felipe. And so they want to go see their family. They want to go tend to their crops if they had a farm already. It's a difficult situation. And with no pay, it makes it even worse. Jameson also writes that James Neal has had to go home because a family member is in poor health. How much of a blow is this to morale? It is a blow to morale, but there is a silver lining because before he leaves, he tells his men, I shall return within approximately two weeks and I will bring men and supplies. When he is on his way back after the fall, he is bringing men and supplies. Just too late. Yeah, just too late. And the group of men that he has, it's approximately 400 men. And that will become the nexus of Sam Houston's army that will go on to fight at San Jacinto. On February 12th, William B. Travis writes a letter filling in the governor on the current state of affairs. Says, you no doubt already know Santa Ana has 2,500 men on the Rio Grande, while Sesma has 2,000 men. So that's 4,500 men for the Mexican army. You know, the reports are that they're getting, yeah, Santa Ana does have that kind of men. They are marching forward. Each one group is mixed with another. So the fact that he says Sesma has that many, that's idealistic. Sesma does have a large group of men, not in all in his cavalry. Some of them are troops that are marching because the Mexican army is spread out. When you march on campaign, you have to spread the troops out, especially in winter. How do you feed the horses? How do you feed the men? How do you give them water? You need to make sure that there's enough time in order for the landscape to recover. These reports, they may be true because the men have gathered at the banks of the Rio Grande, but the Santa Ana troops that are coming with him further back, those men are also spread out. It's a thin line, but it's a long line. In this letter, Travis says he knows that with San Antonio being the frontier post closest to the Rio Grande, it will be the first to be attacked. He writes, we are very illy prepared for the reception as we have not more than 150 men here and they are in a very discouraged state. Yet we are determined to sustain it as long as there is a man left because we consider death preferable to disgrace. And that's one of those things. If you, Travis was one of those prolific readers. Most of his letters are incredible pieces of literature, and it's because he knows how to use the written word. And the fact that he's drawing on the, the concept of we would rather die goes back to the concept of the American Revolution. Give me liberty and give me death. That concept. And so he's trying to draw the American idea into the struggle. And so by writing these letters, he's also going... Why aren't you helping? What's taking so long? You know they're coming. Because in war, when you take a place, chances are the enemy is going to try to retake it. And he does end the letter to the governor asking for more troops, but promising, should we receive no reinforcement, I am determined to defend this place to the last. And should bear fall, your friend will be buried beneath the ruins. He's telling the governor he is prepared to die. Yes, he is. He's making a bold statement. I am ready to die for what we believe in. I am willing to die for the cause of an independent Texas. 
There is something interesting kind of buried in this letter. He writes that with James Neal gone, he's taking over as post commander, and he feels like he's in an awkward position. Yes, he is, because he's in this position for one, one way is he's a cavalryman, and he's stationed at a fort. Two, he has to deal with a co-commander who is in charge of the volunteers. He's in charge of the regulars, and that is a totally different problem in its own right. When you have two commanders at one post, it doesn't make it easy for either one. At this point, it's extremely obvious to everyone that San Antonio and the Alamo do not have enough soldiers. You mentioned earlier about how the Texans taking the fight down to Matamoros really split the field. But why isn't there more, for a lack of better word, hustle to get people back? The thing is that at this time, people are struggling to find their way. And so, again, it goes back to the provisional government is in turmoil. There's a fight between the governor and the council. There's not a lot of agreement at the top. And so with disagreement at the top, it makes it tough at the bottom. It's one of those struggles where if you don't get everything aligned properly, you're not going to get anything done. And that's what's happening in Texas at this point. It seems like Travis is wondering, too, where's the hustle? Because the very next day, February 13th, after writing this poetic letter to the governor, he writes the governor again with the tone of someone who sounds like he was up all night worrying. Yes, and it's because he's stuck in a really bad position. You've heard that the Mexican army is marching north with a gigantic army. You've got a handful of men. You may have a lot of artillery pieces here, but you don't have enough men to actually man them properly. You've got walls, but you don't have enough men to defend them properly. You don't have supplies that you need because they were taken earlier. So it's a struggle, and decisions have to be made. How do you defend a site when you don't have enough supplies and men to do so? He writes more about personality issues. Again, that without Neil, he's in an awkward position. He says James Bowie has been, quote, roaring drunk all the time. And he writes that the Alamo is the key to Texas, but, quote, we much need money. Can you not send us some? It's kind of like a per my last email. Yeah, that's basically it. It's like, hey, did you not read the letter I sent you? And it's because, well, he's struggling. Now, Bowie's struggling as well, right? He's he's not in the best of health. 1833, he lost his family. He's been taking to the drink a lot. His illness, again, like I said, Then you've got the fact that without money, how do you buy provisions? He's still in town. So how many IOUs can you send before they tell you no more? So he really is stuck between a rock and a hard place. A few days later, Travis writes another letter to the governor. On February 15th, this letter introduces the governor to a man named Erastus Smith, who Travis calls the bravest of the brave. Erastus Deef Smith. Travis introduces him to Henry Smith. And the thing about Erastus Smith is he does not want to have anything to do with this revolution. He wants to be left alone. And he's harassed on his way home. And the minute he's harassed, it turns into his own personal vendetta. And it's on. When Travis introduces him and he says he is the bravest of the brave, he also says that he is a person that will be great to Texas. He is an ally. And all that Travis asks is that they care for his family. Erastus Smith will change the course of Texas history. One man can make a difference. How did he change the course of Texas history? He is the person that destroys Vince's bridge 
prior to the Battle of San Jacinto, making the only way out of that area straight towards the Texas Army. So he cut the one escape route that the Mexican Army had. And we are getting a little bit ahead of our timeline, but you can see the seeds being planted of where these people end up. Yep. On February 17th, 1836, Santa Ana addresses the Mexican army in a firm battle cry, says we are here to fight people who took our land and that this is revenge for previous Mexican losses. Yes, and so Santa Ana is a charismatic leader. And so how do you get people to actually want to fight? Well, you give them a speech and you talk about things that were taken from them. And if you think about what the Mexican army is up against, they're up against a group of people that are fighting against their authority, but the way you can word it is, we allowed them to come and live in our, in our country, and this is the thanks we get. They are fighting against us. They are not with us. And so Santa Ana is actually just pushing the propaganda to get his centralist authority seated deeply into Texas. We have the hindsight of history to know not only has Santa Ana crossed the Rio Grande, but he is closing in on the Alamo. He's closing in. And now as he's moving forward, he's beginning to his final descent into Texas. Ramirez and Sesma is ahead with the cavalry. Unfortunately, they don't cross the river fast enough because it had been raining. It was a rainy season, so they held back. Who knows what would have happened had they crossed the river a day earlier. Would they have caught the Alamo defenders in town? Not prepared? We'll never know. No, we won't. Next week's episode will be all about the siege of the Alamo. In the meantime, Ernesto Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Be sure to check out the Alamo's social media pages this month because we're posting transcriptions of the letters we've discussed in this episode. And in the podcast notes for this episode, we're going to post the links to all the commemoration events taking place at the Alamo to remember the siege and the battle as well as how you can come see the famous Victory or Death Travis Letter in person. It's now back at the Alamo for just the second time since it left Travis's hands. The Alamo is so grateful for the loan, courtesy the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. You've been listening to Stories Bigger Than Texas, the Alamo Podcast. <laughs>